Coming up next is Real People in the Psychotherapist Chair with Jerry Pives. What gets you out of bed in the morning? Who has influenced you the most? How has your background contributed to who you are today? And how do you deal with stress and trauma? Immersing myself in nature is probably my first go-to. Sometimes with just a kind word, just a, hey, it's okay. Join registered psychotherapist and author, Jerry Pives, as he invites New Zealanders from all walks of life into the psychotherapist chair. Check out reality with others, but also check out reality with yourself. Listen in as they open up about their lives, their family's history, and what drives them. I had already kind of been through a massive trauma, so I already felt kind of strong and equipped at the beginning to deal with something that was out of my control. Prepare to be entranced as Kiwis open up about their heritage, their lives, and the understanding of their place in the universe. Frankly, I know very few people who are not struggling to some degree or other in these highly traumatic times that we're living through. Tune in to Real People with Jerry Pives, Tuesdays at 1pm, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Well, we've got a real treat for you on In the Psychotherapist Chair today. This is Jerry Pives on Real People. In the last couple of years, I kept hearing about this psychiatrist who was giving great support and help to all sorts of groups that I kept bumping into in New Zealand, and I became intrigued. I kept hearing the name, René de Monchy. What an amazing name that is. And I eventually got to speak to him, and I was just so impressed. I thought I shouldn't keep him all to myself. So stay tuned to Real People in the Psychotherapist Chair if you want to hear the life story of René de Monchy. If you're interested in hearing about his family roots in the Huguenots in France and the massacre of the Huguenots and the escape of his family to Holland and the story of his own uncle, the mayor of The Hague, as the Nazis invaded, getting in prison for telling the Nederlanders to fight and resist Hitler. And if you want to hear about his growing up life as a teenager, as a deckhand flying the ocean waves, and then as a doctor in Africa, and then ending his life here, well, hopefully not ending too soon, but ending his life here as a psychiatrist in New Zealand, offering soothing support and wise words of wisdom in very difficult times. He's a voice that needs to be heard. And in addition to that, if you want to hear a qualified doctor and psychiatrist talking about the spiritual dimensions of breathing, eating, turning our anatomical system into an exploration of our very essence and spiritual being, and his views on our uniqueness and our rights to freedom. And if you want to hear us talking once again with a topic that returns again and again on real people, the difficulty of being a good father and his guilt at following his destiny, a conflict that every father will resonate with. And if you want to hear his top tips for balance after a lifetime helping people, his understanding of our need for rhythm, for our need for art and music, our understanding of the stars, and sometimes just stopping, being still, and breathing. 
that will be the session that is coming up. And after the session, if you want to hear me summarizing Rene's top tips for mental health, then stay tuned for my reflections and why it's so important for Kiwis to learn that it's okay sometimes to say no. And as well in my reflections, because this is our fourth episode, I'm going to give a summary of all the past episodes and all the mental health learning that we've gathered from the last four sessions. So if you've missed the last three sessions, you can always get them on replay. But if you've missed them and you want just to hear them in a quick summary, then stay tuned for reflections. And don't forget, at the end, you'll get to hear Rene's top seven tracks as he looks at his life through seven tracks of music and you're going to hear some truly beautiful and inspirational music. So it's my enormous pleasure and privilege to invite René de Monchy into the psychotherapist chair. René, welcome and thank you for um, being willing to uh, put yourself into the psychotherapist chair. Thank you. That is a great honour and I think how you came to this idea and then the working it out in the format is really very interesting because I'm also a psychotherapist, but as you may know, but somewhat later in my life. Well, let's kick off with that and give the listeners a little bit of background as to who you are. And one way to do that might be for us to start off with your current life and work right now, today. Like, what is your week or your day? And give the listeners a flavor of what your life consists of at the moment, who you live with, where you live. Um, You don't have to give all the details, but just roughly what area you live. Well, so my name is René, René de Monchy, to make it more complicated because it's French. My funny accent is from Holland, and I've been here in New Zealand about 50 years now or 48 years. I live in in Tauranga, married my second marriage with Elisabeth von Tobel, who is a eurythmist as well as a psychotherapist. She works mainly in psychotherapy as well. And we work in the same clinic, the so-called life clinic. Uh, I'm the only doctor there, but there's a chiropractor. uh, There's two homeopaths working there and us. And it's a very holistic practice. And that was also a bit of a lifeline, as it were, because I'm also working in the hospital or in the mental health services in Tauranga, working at the moment in the drug and alcohol service, where I work three days a week. And alternatively, I go then every two weeks to Wakatani to do a day there. And so that is a part of psychiatry that's actually very interesting. But the I was mandated out uh, on the 16th of November 21, uh, from the one moment to the other, really, within a quarter of an hour. And then, so I couldn't work there, but I decided to simply continue working in the life clinic as I had done before, because I had been a doctor now for, for a very long time. This year is my 50th year that I'm a doctor. And so I I haven't changed anything, but the world around me completely changed. And everything that was normal practice wasn't anymore. But I thought I'm not going to to fall for that. So, yes, I couldn't work in the public system, but I simply kept on working under the radar in the the life clinic. And 
that is a very supportive environment, supportive people too. So that's what I do at the moment. And Fridays, I work in the garden. I try to work in the garden. And we work in Tauranga. We've got a lovely house and a reasonably large section. And uh, Elizabeth is the, the flower girl. And I have got a new hobby in growing vegetables, etc. in the last two years. And that is really fun to be with your hands in the warm soil and converse with the worms and the, the blackbirds who sit waiting for me to get these worms free so that they can gobble them up. It's just something so primary in life. And that's what I like. I've had for a very long time uh, have been meditating. And so my inner life has been active for a long time. But now that I'm a bit older, I'm 78, it is as if you change a bit too, that although you're outwardly very active, and I am, you tend to become even more philosophical and thinking. And so when when working on the earth, and to you you feel this oneness more directly than, than otherwise, uh, it's interesting that Elizabeth and I were reading this morning. We read every morning, usually very early uh, in the weekends, a bit later, but normally from about five to six, we have our first coffee and we read and we read each other books and we read then also lectures of Steiners. And this interesting part that, that we talked about this morning already, for instance, talking about the human hair, we talk about a hair. You know, a hair. There is actually nothing like a hair. A hair is only as a hair as long as it's part of the body. And so um, a plant is only plant as long as it's part of the earth. And that brought us to what is a human being, actually? Where is his home? And, of course, then you come straight into the, the spiritual realm is, that is where we actually live and we 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 are here for a time on this earth so it's interesting how everything that you experience can bring you in that more direct contact with what the african call ubuntu and uh, when i worked in a mission hospital in africa the the zimbabwean people the shona people they call it mwari he or what is undefined and yet into every tiniest detail of existence. And I, I like that because that's exactly how I also see the, the sense of Christ, actually, and of whole religion. It's everywhere. It is just, it is. And that's in the Shona word, Mwari, this undefined yet definitely defined, if you like, at the same time. And I've come more and more to the conclusion that that is what with everything is, uh, that whole totality, you can put that into little bits and fragments, and you can look at it under a microscope, but you have the same wonder and admiration when you do that, as when you see a child playing with a ball, you know, or an old woman smiling to an old man who both hardly can walk. That's what I mean. 
Right from the off, Rene, I'm just getting, uh, I mean, we've never met, so I'm getting a powerful sense of the really profound spiritual perspective that you have on everything, that it's impossible to, in many ways, think of things as separate, but in fact, for you, there's a unifying spiritual kind of um, container almost that holds everything in your frame of reference. Would that be an accurate assessment to make? Yes, yes, I, I am absolutely, I'm, it, and it's not a question of knowledge, actually, this is interesting, it's a question of knowing, and I can talk briefly about that, but when I was very young, about four or five, I was very ill and had, was between life and death for a while, and this was in the late 40s, so they didn't really have the same techniques as we have now, and I was operated, but I had this this very clear near-death experience of knowing that whatever we see and touch and feel, that is actually a dream. The reality is behind that. So if I, how can I say that? You see that I'm, I'm holding my cup here. I'm drinking my coffee. And this cup is, is a normal cup, and it's got an, an, a pattern in it. So you say, well, this is reality. It's made of things. Um, it has been sculptured. It has been fired. It has been glazed, etc. So a cup is this. Yes. But there was also, be, long before this came, there was a man or a woman who thought, I actually want to make a cup. I want to, I want to make something different. And there was nothing material there. But gradually, from that, that thought, from that visualization of how can I do that? What can I do? Finally, there came, there came this cup as the outer manifestation of that whole process that starts really in the imaginary, if you call spiritual realm, and gets more frozen into matter gradually. And that is how I see everything. So um, a piece of music is less frozen than this cup, but it is similar. It is also substance. And so the human being, I can say, well, Jerry is one meter 78 tall. He weighs 85 kilograms. His body temperature is this or that and the other. And I can even do a CT scan. I can do know more about Jerry than he himself knows, as it were. But that is only the, the very superficial, very small layer of actually who Jerry is. So we, we are living in this dimension of space and time for a while. And in order to develop further in our total being, and that total being is, of course, that what we strive for, and as I said, the, the, we are a spiritual being among a whole lot of spiritual beings, billions. The essential spiritual beings that you will find in, in goodness, love, compassion, service, all these sort of things. Also beings like jealousy, greed, control, I do believe that they are actually also beings. So the more 
I can actually live in conjunction in my life with goodness and gratitude and loving and service. And this sounds perhaps a bit airy-fairy, but it isn't actually. Means that not only do I enlarge my own sense of that, but also I help that being to grow in the world, to actually expand in the whole of the universe. Because I believe that anything we do is a question of eventually freedom. We are given that freedom. And the challenges that we have in life of what you can call opposing forces or what we see at the moment, really this control to squeeze us into robotic automatons, um, not able to, to think and decide for itself. That is really dehumanizing us. And you can ask yourself, why is that? Because there is a reason for that too, because that's, there is no goodness without badness, just like there is no matter without spirit. And so we, it helps us in the whole of the evolution of consciousness over the thousands of years where we have come to this point of it is really up to us, not unto anybody's authority, but unto us as individual human beings, in the first place, to be aware. And with awareness comes also that freedom to choice and take the consequences of what it is. So when this whole COVID business, for instance, it became, it was quite clear to me right from the beginning that this was an attack onto the human being and the human consciousness and the human awareness to enslave for some principle that actually came out to be quite corrupt. And most people have fallen for that. And it is logical that they fall for that because it is so well presented and so incredibly strong, but it, it makes us inhuman. Well, I could not agree more. I've come in a probably slightly different route, but I've come to the same analysis of the situation that what we have is an attack on our humanity. And I think, you know, it is reconnecting what, what makes humans so incredibly different uh, from machines, of course, is our emotional warmth, our ability to connect with each other and to give reassurance and sustenance and indeed life itself to each other. And that we give each other life when we give, when we give attention, when we give stimulus, when we give discussions like these, we're giving a form of life to each other. And so I absolutely am with you on this. I'm fascinated by your journey. And I want to go back to that opening moment with that four or five-year-old experience that changed your perception, that near-death experience that kind of set you off at the early age of five, seeing things in a very different way. So I was born straight after the war. In fact, conceived probably around about the day of the liberation of our little town. And I grew up in actually a very loving family. And, and there was a lot of responsibility and a lot of freedom at the same time. And so there was also in the 
after war years where you were actually very grateful for being alive. And the next door to our house was an, an, uh, actually two places where there were no houses. They had been bombed out. And that was where we played as children. And gradually the country was building itself up again. But so you had less the idea that things were, you didn't take them so much for granted, I suppose, and it was a bit simpler. And I grew up with that. So it was always stimulated to think. And then I was very fortunate in my teenage years to go to the smallest state grammar school actually in Holland. There was 160 pupils. And with the teachers, we really, we engaged in life at those times. It was also at the middle of the Cold War, don't forget that. And I was born close to the German border. So actually, the East Zone was closer than Rotterdam to where I lived, in the western part of Holland. So you you were aware of that. And I hitchhiked through Europe. You could still do that in those late 50s and 60s. Always with a sense of, yes, I can trust. When I was 16, I went as a deckhand on a freighter to America. And then a bit later in Canada as a lumberjack. So I've always had this wish to to explore both outwardly and inwardly. So I'm actually, I mean, it might sound from all this as if we're just very eerie fairy sort of thing, but I'm actually pretty much on this earth and standing here quite firmly. And I love that. But if I would die tomorrow, that's fine too. I mean, I, I have, as Jung said, as soon as you have integrated death into your life, you can start to live. And that's true. But I am gravely concerned about what happens in this world. Um, and of course, I look at that from a medical point of view and with these so-called vaccinations and changing via the mRNA to actually what is now clearly shown, changing our, our DNA structure. That is something that hasn't happened in the past. So the you've always had tendencies to bring the human being away from his path. But now to do it with these means that our own immune system, psychoneurobiological immunity that incorporates everything is changed in a gene manipulation way, that is, that's new. And that is really, I think that is actually evil. It is all in the name of control, or it's not in the name of control, but it is actually control. And so there is some plan behind that, that everything is exactly the same in the whole world, making us all the same, eating the same things at McDonald's, watching the same television programs, becoming the same personas rather than egos as really inner selves. That is the attack. And so um, I've come a bit to the conclusion that is different, but that all these things are almost as a reaction to the human being developing and going over a threshold, both individually and as a whole society, 
over a threshold where the what used to be seen as really quite dividing the the physical and the spiritual world that actually seeing that and after that time that I was between life and death I've always been having deja vus and I still have those a lot so that's simply I'm not clairvoyant but it is simply that it is an awareness and I think more and more people are going over that threshold you know meditation is something that so many people do and 30 years ago when you thought about that you thought about tibetan monks doing that and people are getting over that threshold meaning over that threshold of becoming more aware more knowing and therefore actually freer and the the powers that be the earthly physical powers that is the last that they want to see they want to prevent that at all cost and so i have a feeling that a lot of these vicious measures in all sense in the way of government controls and still based on a 19th century dualistic principle from us and them employer employee government parliament uh all of that time is actually passed but we're still stuck with it and there are very strong forces that want it at all cost to prevent us from waking up now this was a long monologue ah uh, listen keep them coming rene i could sit and listen to you for so long i i love what you say um i was a history teacher initially back in the day and it's been the historical exploration of people's lives that has actually interested me a great deal the roots of where our influences come from and while we're on that i'm going to try and pin you down a little bit more to your personal life this is very personal of course it is what you're describing but i just wonder What do you know about your name? I mean this French name living in Holland, uh, born in Holland. What do you know about the roots of your family? Do you have any um oh, yeah. idea oh, yeah. of where they all come from? Yes, absolutely. Huguenot family. And that's interesting. This is right from the beginning genealogically too. The fight for freedom. So being Protestants in France and Henry the 4th had given the freedom of of religion and then after that i think it was louis the 14th who recanted that and said no everybody must become catholic so you had then the huguenots who then uh, went quite a few to prussia quite a few to holland and that's where my family is so that was in the 17th century and actually you find well, they- a lot of names also in south africa and because then they came went from holland to south africa and started the whole wine culture there etc it would be interesting the slaughter of the huguenots uh, is one of the most horrific crimes in the history of france actually um mm-hmm. and the escape from that persecution is something that presumably your ancestors would have experienced they would have escaped from that they would have yeah. traveled to holland had to set up in a different culture a different country um heaven alone knows what trials and tribulations your ancestors must have gone through just to establish themselves in holland the one was the was also rene de monchi he was an old uncle of mine he was the burgomaster the mayor of the hague and the hague was the residence 
And on 10th of May, the Germans came into the country for occupation in 1940. And immediately he spoke out. He said, you can never, never work, never collaborate with these people who just under false pretenses take over the land. And of course, he was straight imprisoned and all of that. But that was another part that you will always see that in your life, you come to a point where you have to make a choice. And that you, who are you going to be? And I remember somebody very close to me at the time. She said, look, better a living coward than a dead hero. And I've never subscribed to that because I, I believe in the continuity of life. And I believe that there is a purpose. And for us to man know thyself, to try to get to know your purpose, that gives strength in you for what is happening at the moment. And I'm involved in the New Zealand doctor speaking out of science and, and, and New Zealand rising and all of those things that you know about. This is actually, to put it in military terms, this is a hill that I'm prepared to die on. Because I feel that we're in such dire straits and so many people are actually waking up in the world globally by simply getting in touch with yourself. Does this actually feel right? And in every aspect to get finer tunes tuned within yourself to listen to that voice. And it will tell you because that is, that is your inter eternal self. So anyhow, then I, I grew up there and it was good. And then I studied medicine. It was actually Albert Schweitzer who became my idol when I was 12. And my uncle made a big sculpture in bronze of his and it took him two years. And I read and wanted to know as much as I could about this person who has got science, art and religion, these three major aspects of the human being in himself. And he started his little hospital in Africa. And that's, I knew then, and I actually want to become a doctor and want to go to Africa. And I was 50 when that finally happened. After first a few years beforehand, um, hitchhiking and walking through Southern Africa. So I was there for four years, four and a half years. And that was also hard because it was being on yourself. And I was long separated and divorced, but not understood by family and by by the normal way of, of civilian thinking. That was really hard. So I then from 55 started to do psychiatry. And from 62, I I've been a, a psychiatrist now. There was a very big gap there between studying in medicine and making it to Africa to fulfill that boyhood dream at the age of 12 to fulfilling it. What happened in, in the intervening years? I'm interested in, in what got in the way or, or not even got in the way. What just happened in your life between qualifying as a medical doctor and getting to Africa? Well, I, I trained for Africa. So also did surgery and obstetrics as well as diploma of tropical medicine. Um, then I married and my then father-in-law was dead against us going to Africa and that had something to do with coming here but those are the outer circumstances of immigrating in 75 to New Zealand to Hawke's Bay 
where there was one anthroposophical doctor, that was Dr. Friedlander. And I got so frustrated with not being able to, to treat a patient because of my way of thinking, my medical way of thinking. And I I phoned him and then we got, got in contact and we studied together. He worked at Hohepa. He was the doctor of Hohepa, uh, the Center for Disabled People. And we studied a lot together. And I would phone him really several times a day, say, Ken, I got this child with earache. Ken, I got this person, this woman who was having very heavy periods. I got this whatever. And he would tell me which remedies there were. And so that's where my my anthroposophical as well as conventional practice really started. So the, the outer parts, there are things, but inwardly, I think it had very much to do with encountering anthroposophy. And I needed to be completely fresh on that, not, not to have any family ties or cultural ties with it so that I could really, I'd always had a very strong esoteric Christian sense, not Christianity and the little church that we had was, was all about freedom. And consciousness, actually, it was nothing like hell and condemnation or anything. It was where I learned about Jung and Buddha. And, and <laughs> as Elizabeth had gone and done some Vipassana trainings, I went there too. So then gradually you pick from all sides what comes on your path, because there is no coincidence. Whatever comes on my path asks simply for me to be aware nothing more. And then to choose from that awareness, am I going to do something about it? Am I going to not do anything? Am I going to whatever? But it means that you, through an awareness of what comes on your path, you make a decision and you take the consequences of what, what you do. And also, as I always said to my children, when you go with the flow, you won't get there. If you really want to get to know who you are and what life is about, you have to swim upstream. You, if you want to go to the source, and it's going to be hard, like the salmon swimming up there. He, and I was in Canada, as I said, and, and worked there. The, the salmon right in the upper Fraser River near Alaska they swim right upstream. They don't eat since leaving the, the Pacific Ocean, and they discolor. And by the time they get hundreds of kilometers up further, they spawn and die. So this incredible strength in life, really, these etheric forces, and we have those as well. We have those, and with these etheric forces, we can think Wounds can heal. We can overcome actually almost everything. As long as we see that in the whole framework of that self and higher self and not just a manifestation, that's where we go wrong. Say what you mean about not just a manifestation so I can understand fully. Well, you know, the what I said about the cup, but the same is human beings. You are far more than this persona that, that you are in this 
in this life. And you are you breathe your air that comes in first and goes through your lungs, then goes via your heart and your circulation into the finest blood vessels where it comes to silence. And then it gives off the oxygen. And from there it takes in the carbon dioxide, but it also takes in, in all the tissues that it goes through, it, it takes in a part of you. Then it goes back to the lungs and it breathes out. And it doesn't breathe out just the nitrogen, this carbon dioxide and a bit less oxygen. No, it also breathes out you, that very fine part that you have actually are breathing out into the world and each one of us. And what a gift we actually give. So this whole, coming back to Ubuntu, this whole part that, that, that we are part of, but it also asks us not to be nice and eerie-fairy about it, but to, to be very clear and say, no, I'm not prepared to do this. And that's that's at the point where we are. I think there is a great price to pay for conformity. Not clearly, not in the beginning. Yeah. Because conformity gives you the pseudo-securities. It gives you all those sort of things, but they're exi-pseudo. But it will never give you freedom. The price to pay for conformity, I just came to that actually this morning, is enslavement. Yes. And human being is is born to be free. Also, if you want that in biblical terms, uh, Jesus sets you free. Yes. Wow. Well, I'm afraid we're having a very superficial conversation here with Dr. René de Monchy about, <laughs> about this and that. Um, I don't believe we've mentioned real estate once, and I don't believe we've mentioned um, what our possessions are or all the material, the stuff of life that people talk about. I am interested in your perception that there is a great awakening going on. And I would also say there's a great falling asleep going on. What do you think about that? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And the stakes are high now. The stakes were probably less high in the past. And that is for the waking up, the challenge needs to be much bigger, apparently. And that is sad. That is, it's really sad. But that's how it is. And I think... In the continuity of life, there is always hope and there is there's the being of love to help us with us, even if the consequences are dire. And I think helping our fellow human being, our literally brothers and sisters, not, not literally brothers and sisters, but our human fellow human beings who are suffering, um, we're all in the same boat. And as I just read yesterday, we're all... We're not in the same boat, actually, but we're in the same storm. Some are in a boat, some a canoe, and some people will drown. But we're here to help the people who come on our path, who are who are suffering. And we are our brother's keeper. I, I really feel that. I want to know from you, Rene, what would you say was the toughest moment in your life? And how did you get out of it? 
So one of the, the crisis situations in my life was when I was 37 and being overseas, working in an anthroposophical clinic. And there came a real big per personal crisis that later led to the dissolution of my, my marriage. And the idea in that, that I had actually fallen out of paradise. It was really interesting that, I don't know if you heard of Lievergoed, Professor Lievergoed, very wonderful man in Holland. And he said, René, you are just on your second moon note, 37 years and two months. And so that's when the constellation is uh, almost identical to at birth. And that is where, at that age, you often see when you read biographies um, that things happened or that people died. I think Raphael died at that age and Mozart, I'm not sure. But often when you work in psychotherapy, you will find that in that time, there is a time of either you go with a conformity or you go through this moment of being absolutely alone. But of course, you are not alone. So that was one. I've had also the, the going to Africa. And I must say that Elizabeth was incredibly helpful with that because we had been together for seven years and, and went there for four years, four and a half years. And she came once a year for about six weeks. For my children, it must have been very hard. And my ex-wife and... I feel that still in a feeling of a great guilt in a way that I carry, but yet I had to do it. And so when I had gone at 48 with my tent and backpack through Africa, and that was because Africa had always behind in my mind to go there. And so I took three or four months out of the practice and then I took a flight into Harare and in Zimbabwe and out in Cape Town where a friend of mine lived who had started a handicapped village like Hohepa. That was all I knew. And so the coming in and coming and going out, I didn't know a soul in Africa and I didn't know how I would do it and largely walking and, and hitchhiking through Southern Africa. And I had so many deja vus of things that I knew they were right. Then I came back and I went to VSA, uh, Volunteer Services Abroad in Wellington, and I said, how? I have this feeling that it is stronger and stronger that I actually need to go there. This is not a youth dream. This was really far more than that. This was really a destiny. And this young doctor, he said to me, well, you must write to Dr. Ashwanden in Matibi, now, the Dr. Ashwanen is a Swiss surgeon who lived somewhere in the middle of Africa. Matibi was probably a little village of about 10 huts. And I said, I'll do that because I dreamt that about three weeks ago, uh, these names out of nowhere. And I did that. And then finally, indeed, I came there. And when I arrived there, I recognized it. I knew if I open this door, I come in that room and it looks like this and this. So it only comes at that time where your guardian angel or the, the spiritual world holds its breath 
What is he going to do? And that is hard. And there's always a price to pay for that. But somehow you need to be true to yourself. But most of all, to thine own self be true. And I am a bit of a loner in one aspect, a sociable loner probably. It sounds like the thing that helped you through and actually continues to help you through is this sense of truthfulness, of following your truth, of integrity, as you said, to thine own self be true, that this isn't a kind of, oh, I'll put a bit of incense on and I'll do my yoga positions and everything will be okay. This is a much more kind of deep sense of how do I get through difficult times? I get through the difficult times by really listening to what is the right and true thing for me to do. Have I have I caught that accurately? Yes, I think the one thing that is probably as important in that is the feeling of gratitude. So I try to every hour say simply thank you. So that's one thing. But with that very nice how you say that and trying to be true, But of course, I have a big backpack of what I have done wrong and that I wish I had not done. And I must say, especially trying to to find it with my children, because we live in, in such completely different lives. Yeah, so I got five children and they are all five of them parents. They're all married. And they're actually really good people. Um, And I love them. I always wish that I would be closer to them. And yet that doesn't happen. So what what happened is that when you listen to what we've just been saying, it sounds almost like what an egotistical man who only thinks about himself. Yet they are continuously in my thoughts, but it is almost like I haven't got the right key for that lock and that my ex-wife is sort of a born mother and grandmother and she has that lock, but it is also the lives that they lead is, of course, completely different from mine. And that is a source of sadness. This is sort of a source of grief. And we need to see what will happen to that in later life. And also about this whole COVID thing, the same. I mean, I'm I'm there, the only one. And yeah, you live with that. And that is important. I really appreciate your honesty around that. And I certainly resonate with what you describe as that backpack of failures. I think we either delude ourselves that we don't have that backpack. Yeah. Or we face it, and it's not comfortable sometimes because we have this capacity to let people down. I'm picking up from you a courage and a, a sadness and a, you know, if not regret, then a recognition of reality and, and of who we are. Does yeah. any of that reflect? Oh, absolutely. And, of course, what Jung calls the shadow and Steiner calls the double, and Steiner goes a bit further, he says that unredeemed part of ourselves from our past lives that will manifest itself for us to really look at it, to put light onto it, and in a way to redeem it with that. Um, 
to become aware of of that is very important. And I remember after having seen Schindler's List, which actually was very interesting to see, because this is this man who befriends all these high German guys, etc., and does does the good things as well. So the whole idea of good and bad or right and wrong, and you mentioned also to do the right thing, I don't think, I think actually that the time is past for us to do the right thing. The right thing is a societal concept. It is what is good. Um, I was very fortunate to travel with the Dalai Lama when he was in New Zealand. I was his doctor in 95, although he's so healthy, there was no need. But And he talks about what is goodness. That is really what counts. And so when I saw Schindler's List, I had always thought, look, I'm I'm actually quite a good person. And I'm, you know, I can't do any of these atrocities. Then I saw that movie and I thought, actually, I can kill. I'm not even sure whether I cannot even torture. When you saw these soldiers throwing up a baby and then shooting it. There is still a part in me that has that sense of this is so wrong, you know, that, that I could do very wrong, as if doing wrong with wrong would make it right. And that was also interesting. I don't know if you've read that little booklet, or short book, uh, Ordinary Man, or Just Ordinary Man. There was a reserve battalion of police reserve battalion in Germany. And these were, what, 40, 50 people? And they were trained in Germany. And they were sent to what is now Ukraine. And they actually got themselves into becoming such incredible subhuman beings who did all the atrocities there. And like in Schindler's List, you know, so they probably would dangle their little child on their laps, etc. So this compartmentalization that we have in our soul, there's more than dualistic possibility. And I think we need to always be aware of that. And then we can, with gratitude, really see there is always light. There is always the possibility for redemption. We are unique. and. That uniqueness is into every particle of our being and in every cell with its own memory of all that has happened in this life and possibly even earlier lives, in the cellular memory, in our own proteins. When we eat something, we dissolve that, whatever we eat, first the glucose in the mouth, then the proteins in the stomach, and then the hardest part, the fats in the in the bile, in the in the small bowel, meaning that we undo the outside world of its own astrality, of its own influence, in order for it to make it ourselves and to reassemble sometimes the same proteins but with our etheric bodies, with our astrality. And I find the interesting thing that the point 
where that whole process of outside nutrition is coming in and comes to that final point, which I compare with dead tie between high and low tide, that point, that infinitely small moment, you know where that happens? That happens in the pancreas. And if you look at the Greek word, pan is all, kreas is meat, meaty substance. So there where we are all meat, in meaning we are fully physically the possibility of incarnating sits there. And it's interesting that's, of course, also where insulin is made, having very much to do with our sense of, of self, our sense of how do we stand in the world. And all of this is via our immune system. The stronger I can become also in my own nutrition, the better I can actually stand in this world and not be overcome by it. And the problem that we see is with this incredible increase in allergies or oversensitivities to outer substances, the task of that actually lies to strengthen ourselves. So I can choose what I can let in and what I say, no, I won't. Uh, I have a choice in that. And that choice has to do with consciousness, with awareness. You know, I was, as a young child, I had asthma. And that's interesting. If you look at asthma, what, what is that? So you have bronchitis and you have asthma. Bronchitis is a problem with the breathing in. Asthma is a difficulty with breathing out. So it's an overinflation. So if you listen to a child who's got asthma, when it is a bronchitis, it is... If you listen to a child with asthma, it's... And that is exactly the same, letting the world come right into and not having the difficulty to push back and say no. And I always feel that that same, and it's often together with allergies, the same sense of oversensitivity physically is also in the soul life. And I always felt as a GP that the teachers and employers love people with asthma because they go to any length to do the right thing. But they have the difficulty to saying no. And I, I was very fortunate because I had a mother who was actually quite phlegmatic. She had had her own difficulties in life, but a wonderful, loving woman. And when I was like that, she would take me on her lap. And by her being, I would simply, I would relax into my breathing. And how different that is now when you put a child, put an inhaler on. Is it yellow? Is it red? Where do I sit? Do I now need to give steroids? So this whole world that has become so insecure. And now you're speaking my language, or you have been all the way through, but particularly you're talking the language of touch. You're talking the language of physiological regulation, but also the emotional the the sense of the attending to the emotion of you as a young child with the asthma being held by your mother 
and that causing everything to relax and the proper form of musculature in the lungs and the alveoli to just relax and do their job because something has been soothed. Whatever it is, it's been soothed by another human being. And I I do go on about this a fair amount. I'm sure the listeners are getting quite bored of me. But the idea of giving and receiving touch to each other in a Mm -hmm. safe and profound way, not a quick rub on the shoulder or a quick handshake or a frantic one-second hug, but more the idea that we can learn how to give each other touch that is essentially soothing not just to the nervous system, but to the soul. And I do think that what you've said about this, Rene, is so interesting because you talked about the pancreas and you talked about insulin and you talked about the insulin being connected with the sense of self. And hasn't this been under attack over, well, I think several hundred years, but I don't even begin to think when it all started. I think it was possibly (laughs) right back at the time of the Sumerians. But I think this Certainly in the last 100, 150 years, the the idea of us being profoundly divine or spiritual beings has been so attacked, you know, in education, in universities, in trainings, it's all got to be scientific reality. And it's like the attack on our uniqueness has been going on a long time. And isn't it interesting how many people are turning up with diabetes these days and sugar problems as a result of this relentless attack on the the sense of the self and what makes us human? And of course, what makes us human is essentially we are capable of such spiritual growth and fulfillment and awareness. Yeah, and so we take the manifestation for the reality. If you look at the old Indian epoch, they realized that whatever we can perceive is Maya. And Plato said actually the same still. It's only the what we don't perceive is the reality. And we have completely changed over to that extent that if we can't perceive it with our senses, it is it is not a reality. We even go to a much further sense that if I can't find a report about it, or if I can't find a certificate, it is not even there. You know, if now the certificate counts for the reality. So if I am parking my car on a disabled car park, you see, and I get out of the car and I walk out there happily, Nobody is going to touch me because I have my card disabled. So I'm allowed to do that. If I come out of the car and the parking warden says, you're not allowed to park here, you haven't got a disabled card. And that is a parody, but that is actually with everything. I can't believe it unless there is proof. And what do I call proof? And then you come to the whole idea of, the belief in science rather than science. Um, Can I just say to the listeners, René, that what they missed was this beautiful demonstration of René as he got out of his chair and he sort of walked around his room and he mimed parking his car with the disabled sticker on and then 
just just walking out hale and healthy with nothing wrong and that's all okay because the sticker is there and then he did this i wish i wish they could have seen this but he then he then got out of the disabled car park but he didn't have a sticker on his car and he's walking with his back bent and his hand on his back and he's hobbling along and still the traffic warden will say no you don't have the certificate the sticker that says you're disabled even though i can see it with my bloody eyes <laughs> i'm still going to give you a for parking in the disabled spot. I just wanted to clarify that. Isn't that interesting that some cultures say what we don't see is the reality? Mm -hmm. And also about the essential touch that you meant. We need to touch one another, emotionally, physically, whatever. And of course there is an untoward touch, and I, I don't mean any of that. But the African people... I mean, in the Shona culture, they talk about the white people who don't touch because it is impossible for an African person to meet another person, see another person, to actually not touch, to not shake a hand or whatever. Because that makes us human. In fact, every end that we see touching the other end when they when they walk on their end paths any every animal does it well you've certainly touched me rene in this conversation that we've had and i suspect many listeners will feel touched by your gentleness by your kindness and by your thoughtfulness and deep thinking and your profound wisdom that you share with us so it's a real privilege to have spent this hour with you, Rene. And I want to just say thank you so much for sitting in the psychotherapist chair. Thank you. It was my pleasure. To get the full experience of The Real People Show, listen live on Tuesdays at 1 p.m. or to the live stream Rewind editions each week on Tuesdays at 10 p.m. and Saturday at 11 a.m. And if that's not possible, we know you'll still love this chat with Jerry and his guest. And a reminder, you can check out the show notes for more information about the music played by checking your app or visiting www.realitycheck.radio forward slash Jerry. That's www.realitycheck.radio forward slash G-E-R-R-Y. So welcome to this second part of my show. This is the part where I reflect on the interview that we've just had with René de Manchy, and in which I think about ways that we can take that information and what practical tools we could all use to help us through tough times and difficult weeks. So before we launch into that, let's have a suitably reflective piece of music. And so we're going to be playing Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings to get us in the mood for some reflective thinking about how we manage our day-to-day lives and ways in which we can improve and support ourselves on this magnificent journey called life. That was Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings, setting us off on our journey into reflecting upon the interview with psychiatrist René de Monchy. And the first thing I want to reflect on was he couldn't resist sharing his great knowledge and experience. 
And actually, there were some real gems in what he said. And I just want to go over those again and perhaps even add a couple more of my own. But his gems were just amazing and so true. One of the things he talked about was our psychological need and our emotional need and indeed our physical need for regularity and rhythm in our lives. Now, this isn't a very popular idea. We live in a culture where we feel we have to do as much as possible and be as successful as possible. Well, success really isn't success when you break yourself and you break down and you have to take months of illness. Many of us have tried that and learned that very tough lesson that we need to find a rhythm. And one person's rhythm may be another person's disrhythm. In previous sessions, I've talked about the importance of sleep. And I would say right at the heart of that is that recovery time in every 24-hour period where we actually get to rest and recuperate. So look for rhythm. Yes, you might be the old boar who goes to bed early, but if it keeps you functioning and it keeps you in a buoyant state of resilience, then that's a gift to everyone around you. Rene also talked about giving yourself feeding, stimulus, nourishment, if you like. And he didn't just mean food, although he has a great understanding of nourishment in in the biological sense and its spiritual element. But he talked, for example, of purchasing a coffee table book on art and just placing it in your living room and just stopping and looking even for a few seconds at some beautiful art. I am less of a visual person and just stopping for a moment in the day and listening to some beautiful music. Indeed, we heard Sue Hoskin talk about that in her session, how she would just put on music and dance or do some yoga to music. So take yourself out of yourself. Give yourself a break from yourself. (laughs) Another technique that René said is go out and just look at the stars. And I think he really meant just wonder at the stars, wonder at their beauty. Ask ourselves the big question, who am I? Why am I here? And oh my God, how amazing is creation? And then René also suggested that we might try and switch off the computer and sit and be still. And I would add to that to breathe and to follow the flow of your breathing and let your body have space to find and explore ways to breathe. There's probably a whole book right there in how to manage stress and trauma. So I'm just going to add a couple more techniques. I think I've already mentioned that finding someone who you trust, someone who you can talk to without censorship, someone who you feel safe with, and making a weekly coffee date with them, a coffee catch-up, and allow a full hour, having someone to whom you can talk openly about all the things that are going on for you. That can be a lifesaver, actually. And I think I've mentioned elsewhere that I have met clients who have reported to me that they've gone through periods of their life where if they had not had that friend to meet up for each week, 
they would probably not be here now. So never underestimate the power of coffee. <laughs> and in our very first session, I think that's when I talked about this, when we had Leanne's coffee cart. And if you haven't heard that one, that's certainly worth a listen, that episode. The other thing I want to say is that in my conversation with Rene, we often talked about the role of feet. And I know this is a bit left of field, but the feet are absolutely remarkable. They contain in the soles of our feet. I mean, just look at the word soul, the soles of our feet. I mean, who would give a name to the foot of soul? I know it's spelt differently, but just listen to it, the soles of our feet. And in my work as a body worker and massage therapist, uh, I was working with many, many thousands of massage therapists, all of whom were dealing with clients and the stresses that that can bring. And it didn't take me long to realize that they needed something really helpful to look after themselves in that. So I developed this method where you simply stand barefooted on the grass. And by the way, this could be done staring at the stars. It could be done just taking in a view in the park. You just feel your feet on the ground and stand with your feet slightly further apart. So shoulder length apart and bend the knees a little bit. Give yourself a little bounce. And then just lean over onto one foot slightly and feel the increase of pressure, the physical pressure on the sole of your foot. And then slowly lean across and feel the transition of the pressure from the sole of one foot onto the sole of the foot you're leaning into. And just spend a minute or two breathing and focusing your attention on the soles of your feet, feeling the pressure change. And I'm not going to go into a big bunch of theory, but there are so many energy centers in the soles of your feet. As you feel the pressure going over, some of you may even feel the energetic connection that you're making with different parts of your feet. It's almost like you're giving the soles of your feet a massage through the ground. And you're just using a gentle moving of your hips from one side to the other very slowly and a mental focus on the pressure changes on the soles of your feet and your breathing. And if you just do that for a minute, you'll literally take yourself out of the stress because you're filling your mind, not with the stress, you're literally filling the mind with your breath, your movement, and the sensations in your feet. And if you just do that, it's like a refreshment, a break from being yourself. <laughs> and in fact, it's a wonderful break because you are actually tuning in to a far deeper part of yourself than all our anxieties and stress come from. So I hope that's useful to you. The other reflection I have from René's talk is how often he would refer to our sense of self. And what was so remarkable about his interview and his life, actually, is the profoundly spiritual view he has come to of all the kind of medical systems in our body or the systems that medicine attends to, the lungs and the breath, our digestion and nutrition, our immune system. 
But this isn't just any old doctor. This is a doctor who has traveled inwardly in his life's journey and who has sought to access that S of Peems that I mentioned in a previous talk, the spiritual part of Peems. If you don't know what Peems is, the P stands for physical, the E stands for energy, the second E stands for emotions, the M stands for our mental state or our mind, our thoughts, and the S for spiritual, Peems. And in particular, Rene talked about this direct link between our breath, also our digestion and nutrition, our immunity, and our sense of self. And he related this directly to our ability to stand up for our truth and sometimes to say no. And you heard Rene say no. He said, this is a hill I will die on when it came to compromising his spiritual and his professional integrity. I imagine many doctors and many psychiatrists listening to René will have no option but to hang their heads in shame, and so they should. But I want to say something about this ability to say no. And in fact, I also share a medical insight into how we say no. And I'm looking at the biology of the human cell. Because you see, whether it's at a cellular level, or it's at a bodily level, or it's at a social, community, personal level, life actually consists of giving out and receiving in. And we need both. And the giving out is directly linked to our ability to push away. The emotion of anger is there for that one sole purpose, to push people away when they invade our personal or emotional boundaries. And in the last two years, we've seen the most violent and invasive attack on people's very physical boundaries. So just as the arms can be used to push another person away, they can also be used to reach out, open-palmed to the side of our bodies, inviting someone in to the hug, the handshake. And how often is that the first step, particularly amongst men I've noticed here in New Zealand, because men are pretty good around their boundaries, I have to say, sometimes overly boundaried. But first the arm goes out, ah, they respect that boundary, then the shoulders come in, and then it may even progress to a full-on man hug. So we have an energetic boundary with the arms outstretched, and then we have a physical boundary of our skin. And here's where immunity comes in, because the only reason for an injection is to bypass human immunity. All the array of defensive weapons in the throats, in the nose, in the lungs. We have a veritable army of defenders protecting us from invasion by harmful pathogens. But let us come to the cellular level. And it is with the cell that we can have a very clear understanding of the value 
of standing up for our boundaries, standing up for our identity, and sometimes saying no. So if you think of a cell membrane, inside the cell is a whole bunch of stuff going on. So the cell has to have a way, an open doorway to release stuff. And we also need material to come in. We need nutrition. So just as the human body needs to be able to eat and take food in, it also needs to be able to pass waste out. And they can't do that if their membrane is solid. So we have what's called a semi-permeable membrane in cellular biology. And I began to see that all the clients I was working with either had like a personal membrane that was too hard and solid, often with the fellas, not letting anyone in. I wonder if there's a few women that can relate to that last sentence. But there are also personalities that are too open and they let too many people in. And the trouble with the overprotected, stereotypical male is that, yes, they're safe because they're not being invaded, but they're also starving themselves. And if you starve a cell, it withers and dies. If a cell can't allow in, it dies. And on the other side, I found that some clients were so open that they would let everyone in. And they lost all sense of their self. They didn't know the difference between who they were and who the last person they, as it were, let in. And that doesn't mean physical letting in. It can just be emotionally totally influenced by other people, never really having an opinion of their own. So psychologically, I began to realize that for some of my clients, we needed to help them open up those boundaries. And let them know it's safe to choose and let in occasionally, just now and then, to allow ourselves to absorb, to receive. And if you think about the arms reaching out for the hug and then drawing someone in, or, or if you like, even more accurate, the palms going forward, but the palms are facing up to the heavens in a gesture, an archetypal gesture of being willing to receive, to receive another. And that means opening up the boundary. And some of us are overly closed. And we need to think about that. And we need to ask ourselves, can I say, yes, I invite you in? But I think Rene was referring to the other time, which is where we don't know who we are. That can be made very possible by stress and trauma, and in particular by isolation. We disintegrate if we isolate. We don't get any idea of where we stop and others start. And as a massage therapist and body worker, that was the first thing I had to learn. Where did I stop and where did my clients start? And yes, there's a physical side to that. But sometimes with the touch, there was a kind of emerging or an invitation to merge, which resulted in me not knowing who I was. And there was a period when I was working as a body worker where I was too open quite a rare state for a lot of men. And I, I didn't know who I was at the end of a day's working. I became very confused about myself. And then as a result of therapy, psychotherapy, I began to understand that I can be connected, but I can also be separate, that my membrane had to decide. And sometimes I would close my membrane, literally, when I was massaging someone 
And I learned this from my psychotherapist. And, and he just said to me, why don't you just remember a really good day with your child, with your own child? And I had young children then. And in the middle of a, of a massage, I would just close my boundary and just smile to myself and remember my own life was separate from that person's and all their issues and all their problems and all that was going on. And you know what? When I did that, I was able to help them more because I had that boundary. In other words, I closed the door, even for a few seconds, just to remind myself that I am empowered and I have the freedom to, as it were, protect myself or not, to open myself or not. And so when we think about the whole of life as either, as it were, making a more permeable membrane, let more in, or a stronger membrane to keep people out so we can know who we are. So instead of letting people in all the time, as I had to learn, finding ways to close the door. Now, the word that is used for that is one of the smallest words in the English language, but potentially one of the biggest and hardest words to understand. And that's the word no. The word no. And there's a lot of negative connotations around the word no. But for me, our ability to say no is absolutely essential before we can ever say yes. I cannot believe another person's yes if I have not experienced them saying no. I need to know, and that's a different no, K-N-O-W, I need to know that they can say no. Otherwise, I don't trust their yes, and I don't believe their yes. And then if you constantly say yes and you never say no, you end up feeling resentful. And if you feel resentful, you start taking it out on the people you've said yes to. And they go, hold on a sec, I thought you agreed to this. <laughs> There's a lot of blokes can relate to this, getting confused, because a lot of women are brought up never to say no, culturally. But here in New Zealand, we have a major disease. And that disease is a fear of saying no because we fear offending someone. So you have to find a way to say no that makes it clear to the other person. This is not offensive. This is about what you are and are not able to do and willing to do. So I invite you to think about whether your membrane is sufficiently strong to keep out that which you don't want. And it doesn't mean to say you're keeping that person out. It might be that you're keeping out the invasion on the rhythm and regularity of your life that saying yes would create. So you never have the space and the time to build a rhythm to your own life. So part of building the rhythm that Rene talks about, I would suggest, is also developing your ability to say no. No often means I'm giving myself space and time for healing, and I'm going to stay well. Now, a sick person is no use to anyone else. So no becomes a way of looking after the people around you. When you say, I can't do that, you are ensuring that you'll be around tomorrow as their buddy. And it could be that extreme, by the way. When you say no, what you could be saying is, it's really important for us to have clear boundaries between us. 
And that can be incredibly protective of the other person. Not only do you model to them that it's okay to have boundaries, but you also enable yourself to be with them in a way that is effective without having to say yes to everything. Any parent of children knows what I'm talking about. We all want to say yes to our children, but we have to say no so they learn the boundaries of society and they can function easily and with pleasure in human society. Saying yes to children is not a sign of love. It's a sign of fear. And you pass on that fear to your children. Children love it when their parents say no. Just don't try asking them about it. <laughs> of course they love it. That means they know where they are. They know where the boundary is. And once you make that boundary with children, do not change it. I was really poor at that one. I do not talk from a place of great height here. I talk from a place of great failing. And above all else, when you say no, what you're really saying is, I have an innate responsibility to be myself. I can only be myself. Everybody else is taken. And every time you say no, you reinforce this idea that whilst we are communal creatures and we are together and we need each other, we are also born with this divine permission to be free, to be ourselves. And for some of us, that is proof of a divine and loving God that we can always say no. Now, as I promised, I'm also going to review now some of the other tools that have come up in case you've missed them, and so you can go find them. So I've already mentioned the first episode with Leanne, her of the coffee cart. And in the lessons and tools, we talked about creativity as a way out of stress and trauma. And we talked about the need for us all to find meaning. And it was an encouragement to keep questing for your meaning if you don't know what it is already. Have your journey. We're all on a journey. So that was in the first episode. In the second episode, after Craig's interview, he of the wonky donkey fame, talked a lot about sleep and dreams and the importance of the unconscious. The importance of also allowing ourselves again, you know, the same theme is coming up again and again, allowing ourselves to be different, a bit wonky. Well, it needed the wonky donkey man, didn't it, to give us permission to let ourselves be just a bit wonky. And at the end of that, the example of Craig's life and Leanne's and everyone here, actually, that trauma does not define us. It's the meaning that we make. It's what we learn from trauma that defines us. And in each of these episodes, you're going to hear remarkable stories of how trauma defined each person. In the previous episode with Sue Hoskin, we talked about the importance of earth, land, and human community working the land together. And I also shared the PEAMS technique of one of my students, where we check in with ourselves on a regular basis, two or three times a day if necessary, and do a quick scorecard 
on each of our PIMs. How am I doing physically, energetically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually? And then you know what? Adjusting your day. If that little exercise has caused you to think, I need more or less of something, adjust your day. So those are my reflections. And isn't it interesting how they all seem to be circulating around this idea of our identity, of the self, of who we are, but not just in a kind of narcissistic and egocentric kind of way, but in a way that enables us to recognize that other element of being human, which is our need for each other. If we don't know who we are, then how can we be with others? Throughout this show, I'm hoping that you will take encouragement to do the inner work, to go inside yourself, to journal, to take space and look at the stars, to have a coffee catch-up. Doing the inner work, understanding yourself so you can be with others and be of help to others. Because trust me, whatever you discover about yourself in some weird and wonderful way will help you help others even more. Thanks for tuning in to Real People with Jerry Pives. Do you have a guest suggestion for Jerry? If you know someone who has an interesting life story, maybe that someone is you, then please get in touch. Jerry would love to get your feedback, so please send us a text on 2057 or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio to let us know your thoughts about his show. That's your message to 2057 or inbox at realitycheck.radio. Normal texting charges apply. It's time to take a look at the mailbag. How much I enjoy this moment in the show where I get to talk directly to people who have written in and so many interesting things. The first one is actually quite amusing. Um, This one came in unnamed, probably very wisely so, uh, says, just wondering if you're married, Jerry. (laughs) Well, yes, I am. I'm married married to an amazing woman called Ella. And she is beautiful and patient and kind and um, gives me um, more than anyone could ask for in terms of love and support. I hope I give the same back to her. But um, many of my psychotherapist friends uh, regard her marriage to me as a diagnostic criteria all of its own as demonstrating psychotic behavior anyone would have to be mad to marry me is what they say and um i i couldn't possibly comment but <laughs> it's, uh, she puts up with a lot so just a lovely comment coming in saying really enjoying enjoying the show thanks jerry and alongside enjoying rodney marie's lindsay's pauls and all the contributors Yep, I could not agree more. What a great station this is. If you want to hear truth, if you want to hear it straight, if you want to hear it in very direct ways, this is the place to be. Hey, um, And then there's a message I didn't read out from uh, last week after Craig Smith's interview, the wonky donkey man. Uh, Dirk wrote, uh, thank you for your interview with Craig Smith. It's uplifting to hear two emotionally intelligent men speaking of healing and giving practical tips on how to heal. Thank you for your wonderful show. Thank you so much for that, Dirk. That means a lot to me. 
And then we get Beth writing in, going, oh my gosh, after the Sue Hoskins show, where in the music with meaning section, where your life is, you know, the, the guest goes through their life in seven tracks. She's, Beth writes, oh my God, War of the Worlds, that's what Sue Hoskin played. I love this song, and I have it in my own collection. Such a powerful tune. In fact, Beth writes... When I was much younger, I performed a gymnastics routine to it. Another great show, Joey. Oh, what an amazing picture, both. And, and isn't it interesting how and lovely how certain pieces do take us right back and you performing your gymnastics routine. Awesome, awesome. Here's another one. Um, loving the program and the music being presented this afternoon. I purchased War of the Worlds in my 20s and loved it. On a recent road trip with my son, he popped the CD version into the player and told me how he had also been fascinated by the music and the story as a kid while listening to it. The power of audio is unsurpassed, I believe. I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much. When you send in, send to inbox at realitycheck.radio. When you do send in your comments, do put your name in there. It's nice to know. Now we have another one from Teresa saying, Ave Maria, that was also played in Sue Hoskins' bit. Ave Maria, how great to hear on the Feast of the Presentation of Mary. Thank you and blessings to Sue Hoskins and Jerry. Yeah, what a what a powerful piece that is. And wow, the Presentation of Mary. I wonder how many Kiwis know about that one. That's a very deep and profound celebration of a very, very important moment to Christians, which is really the story. I mean, Roman Catholics will know this one, but even in the Protestant tradition, we don't tend to know too much about this. Uh, It's included in the Bible's Apocrypha, which is the bit of the Old Testament, uh, which has been regarded as potentially of different origin, um, held within most Roman Catholic Bibles, but held at a certain arm's distance by many Protestant uh, groups. But the Apocrypha has the, um, I think it's called the Proto-Gospel of James, tells in the Apocrypha of the Bible, tells a whole great story about what happened to Mary. And Mary being presented in the temple as being designated right from her, her own birth, Mary's birth, being presented and recognized as the future mother of God. I mean, that's a pretty big order, isn't it? You'd want lots of support around that one. If you were going to be the mother of God, you'd want to make sure that, you know, if you were God, you'd want to surround that person with loads of support. And this resonates with the idea that Mary was a very special individual. The word for this is also, there's a Greek word called theotokos, which is also used for the presentation of the temple. I happen to know this because one of my teachers was a great Greek fella, and Theotokos means God-bearer, and Madonna or Mary was called the God-bearer. Help! What a job, what a job to be given. Can you imagine if someone turned up to you and said, you were going to be the bearer of God? Whoa. Yeah, thank you for that, Teresa. Nice little journey into Apocrypha, the Bible, and Christianity. It's easier to come out as a trans than to talk about Christianity, hey? <laughs> so of course what am I going to talk about yay <laughs> so then we had a lovely uh, a lovely I had a lovely message from Rob and Rob sent in a beautiful drawing he was talking about trauma and and reflecting on the uh, the talk about trauma in in Craig's show my show with Craig 
And and if you can, I can't do this so easily on radio, but if you just, the, the drawing's a great one, by the way, Rob, thanks for sending it in. And it was a spiral. If you just imagine a spiral on a page and from the center of the spiral, you draw a straight line going out. So that straight line will cross numerous points in that spiral. And that drawing uh, Rob sent in to say, you know, trauma has many layers. You might have something original, which is where the point of the spiral is at the center. But you get all these um, recapitulations, like returns in different ways. The same trauma shows up. And that's such a wonderful message there, Rob, about how trauma is a many layered cake. As I write in my own book, Touching Trauma, one chapter says trauma is a many layered cake. And and when we're dealing with trauma, we are like, you know, unpicking the, the layers of the onion. We, we, we come across one expression of the trauma, but we might meet others and deeper and deeper down. It's why the journey of awareness is kind of never ending. Well, thanks for that, Rob. And then we have another one which came in um, regarding dreams. And uh, one listener reaches out, I'm not going to put a name there, and said, um, talked about having lots of sad and scared dreams and wonders and thinks it's connected to the COVID jab that, that she was forced to have. And um, this is a senior, a senior citizen wondering what that's about. Well, listen, this is such an important one. Um, the, the dreams that really have strong emotional impact and, and we wake up in the morning with a sort of a strong feeling, um, these dreams are very important. They suggest that our unconscious is processing stuff that we're not processing ourselves in the daytime. So one of the ways to reduce the power of these dreams to upset us when we wake up in the morning is to address the issues that the dreams are talking about. And it seems like this listener has um, a real sense of of where this dream comes from, a, a sadness and a fear. So my advice would be go talk, you know, go talk to people, find a person you trust and have a weekly coffee chat, you know, a coffee catch up. Um, the power of this I've talked about in, in my very first episode, the Leanne, uh, I call her Holy St. Leanne of the coffee cart. <laughs> I don't think she likes that, but that's what I call her. Holy St. Leanne of the coffee cart. We talked a lot about, you know, a whole lot, a bunch of things. But one of the things we talked about was how powerful it has been for so many of my clients who've admitted to me that just talking with a sister, a relative, a friend, a good buddy, someone that they don't have to censor everything they say, how powerful that can be in terms of just helping them in their mental health. So go out, find someone, you know, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a GP uh, or a, a counsellor. And, uh, but if if talking with a friend isn't doing it, then I would say go go seek out the GP and and ask if you can have some counselling support. But you know there are so many ways to process material. And in episode two with Craig Smith and the Wonky Donkey, we talked about you know creativity. And indeed, Leanne in episode one talked about creativity. And in episode three, Sue Hoskin talks a great deal about the role of groups and communities. 
And listen, all those of you who've got great buddy groups and you can do this easily and you're meeting up with your mates, please don't be ungrateful. Don't forget who put you together with those groups. Don't forget the three wonderful ladies who put you through into contact through Voices of Freedom. If that was your history, you know, keep going. Don't you know, get, get back into those group meetings if you've not been doing them. You know, you're very, very welcome to come back in. Remember, we want to keep this government accountable. The big problem about what has happened in the last three years and longer, in fact, is we got very lazy about holding governments accountable, isn't it? And this is a psychological problem. This is absolutely a psychological problem. How can he be talking about politics? Well, I tell you what, politics made the biggest creation of depression and suicide and illness that we have seen in our history. There hasn't been a government that has done more to make people sick mentally. So what I'm saying to you is we have a job still to do. Do not leave your Voices of Freedom group just because you've got a few buddies. Don't be so ungrateful. <laughs> come back, you know, come back and give and, and reach out and work out what we've got to do. There's a lot to do. And in the process, you'll be doing the best possible thing for yourself, which isn't just your cozy friendship groups where it's all just an echo chamber and where you're talking about people who you don't agree with. So it's either echo chambering or othering, and that ain't going to work anymore. Yeah, we've had that done to us. We know, many of us listening to this station, know what it's like to be othered, cancelled. We know about that. So we don't do that to others, do we? No, we have to, you know, there's no point in sitting in our little echo chambers with our cozy mates. No, get into the meetings, meet people from different backgrounds, different experiences. And let's talk about how we hold our government, this, this new and exciting government. There's a possibility, there's a, there's a chink in the armor, there's a way to push through, but we are going to be so needed. And that, you joining together with other people, why is that so important? Well, I'll tell you why it's important. It's really good for your mental health to give, even when there's no gain for yourself. Look after the rest of our community, all the people that have been hurt and damaged, all the people who might have been on a different narrative to us, who are waking up to the horror story that many of us have been looking at for the last three years, all the people that have been manipulated and are waking up, finding out that things weren't as they were told. We need to reach out to those people just as much as look after number one. In fact, I would say the biggest problem that we've all faced is the result of looking after number one. We went to sleep. We've got to take responsibility for not doing our citizenship duties. And one of the ways to do your citizenship duties, and I have not been asked by any of these three ladies to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway, is get thee back into your voices group. Yeah, get in there, make them dynamic, really be part of this. And that is my mailbox, folks. Keep on writing. Send them in. I can't wait to hear the next feedback I'm going to get from you. Tell me how you're getting on. Just send me a one-liner. You know, it doesn't have to be a, an epistle. Um, but uh, send me your questions. Send me your thoughts. Send me your reflections. And keep telling me which music rubber-banded you right back to your past. Just send it to inbox at realitycheck.radio. Keep them coming, folks. And now let's just get ourselves in the groove for music with the unforgettable and amazing music of the Doobie Brothers, the highly appropriate title, Listen to the Music. That was the Doobie Brothers, Listen to the Music, to launch us into this Music with Meaning segment.
So, Rennie, tell me what your first track of music is. I'm going to go a bit um, biographical. By about 10, I think probably 10 years old, we started a little band that was a little orchestra. And um, we had first sort of make-believe instruments that we made from plastic piping was the trumpet with a funnel at the end and things like that. And I, I was the drummer. And then later it became classical. Uh, and in that time I was no longer so prominent because we had some very good musicians in that place. After a year, it was clear, and my teacher said that he needed to reduce the number of his pupils, and as it turned out, only with one, and that was with me. <laughs> but we played, we had a little orchestra, and we called it, gave it a grand name, the Hangalows Metropolitan Orchestra. And we played then Haydn's Children's Symphony. So that is a symphony that Haydn made with all sorts of little triangles and, and cuckoo whistles and whatever sort of thing. Haydn went to a marketplace and he bought lots of little instruments for children. And then he wrote that little symphony. So that's probably one of the earlier things in my musical thing. Well, I'm not sure what I think about any music teacher that just cuts you off like that. But let's take a listen to Haydn's Children's Symphony. So you've just been listening to the Children's Symphony by Haydn. And I'm talking to René de Monchy about the soundtracks that have resonated with different periods of his life. So René, tell me what your second piece of music is. Well... I was fortunate. I went actually with my parents to concerts as well, classical concerts. So that was all good. But in my adolescence, there was, and I don't know if you remember that, Radio Luxembourg. Radio Luxembourg was the first commercial station in Western Europe. And I think probably a large percentage of Europe's youth listened to that uh, under the blankets, probably with a little transistor radio or whatever. And so there were all sorts of songs. There were Cliff Richards uh, singing The Young Ones. I very much liked the American group, the Brothers Four or the Kingston Trio. And that is it. Uh, yeah, if you now look at them, freshly shaven, crew-cut American college boys. But in those days, that was... And so they sang, for instance, uh, Try to remember that day in September. They also had this very beautiful song, Come to my bedside, my darling. da 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 na 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 and so you had then the young ones with Cliff Richard. And I also liked uh, Harry Belafonte. Deo, misene, 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 They like come and they will go. Oh, Mr. Dalimon, Dalimipanan. 
And then the same, this is my island in the sun, which I got from my father's hand, etc. So those were really wonderful music. And the very musical, a little bit later came my uh, my interest in jazz. And that was also when... As a 16-year-old on the freighter, I think I told you, as a deckhand, I came to New Orleans. So that must have been in 62 or something. And you had really still on the street corners where you had sort of a trio, usually black people who were playing jazz. And so the Louis Armstrong, the Basin Street Blues, the Basin Street Blues. It was fantastic music. The big bands, um, the, so there was the Dutch Swing College Band, um, and they were just fabulous music. They improvised, and it was this time of, yeah, the, the, the time after the war, and they, they were all in their sort of late teenage years, this exuberance that later then came into the occupations of universities, and uh, Paris was on the siege, De Gaulle disappeared for a while, and then we later had the, I didn't talk about that in the talk, but the Prague Spring, when some fellow students got some people out of Prague to to smuggle them to live with us and things. So that, that was a very wonderful time. So in music, um, these, these big bands were wonderful. You're talking about those years and you traveled through Europe and you worked a passage on a freighter to the States. You arrived in New Orleans. Oh, I didn't book a passage. I got my master book as a crew member as a deckhand on a freighter and I ended up in New Orleans that was the I've never drunk whiskey after that because I got quite drunk and I don't like the stuff anymore but you go actually to the streets in, in New Orleans and on the street corners you had the Basin Street Blues and that is that sort of jazz is Fabulous. Well, can we play that as your second piece of music? Yeah, you do that. Because I think Louis Armstrong, he sings it as well as playing it, I think. Yes, we're going to play Louis Armstrong playing and singing the Basin Street Blues. You've just been listening to Louis Armstrong and the Basin Street Blues. So, Rene, tell us about your third track of music. West Side Story. And that is a story itself, too, that I asked a girl out to go and watch West Side Story to the cinema. The cinema was called Alhambra, and I went with her. Actually, her father owned the cinema, but I insisted that I would pay. <laughs> Today, da, 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 a miracle will happen. I know now it is true. Today, today. Da, da. So that one, yeah, wonderful. And then 
this is made from our hands while and Elizabeth and I, when we married in our own house and in a very intimate setting without any just the, the witnesses and the priest, um, we tried to sing that. Elizabeth did it beautifully. I went straight out of tune, and that was impossible. Make of our hands one hand, make of our hands one hand. So you can actually see that a lot of this is actually very romantic. So, Rennie, you've talked of two pieces of music here. You've talked of West Side Story and two pieces from West Side Story. Which of those two do you want me to play for our listeners? So the one is today, all day, I had a feeling. Is it probably that one? That's what we're going to play. We're now going to play the very famous track from West Side Story. You've just been listening to West Side Story, and you're with me, Jerry Pives, on Reality Check Radio, and we're in the third segment of my program, Real People, and this is the Music with Meaning segment, and I'm talking to René Damanchi about the music that has meaning in his life. So, René, where are you going to take us with your fourth piece of music? Africa, of course, was always there, and so later than the movie Out of Africa, and Mozart's clarinet concerto has always had a wonderful place in my heart. Dave Brubeck, do you remember that? I do, I do, yes. But just hold on, slow down a second. You're running away. The Out of Africa. Did they play Mozart's clarinet concerto in that? Yeah, that yeah. was the theme. Yeah, I thought so, yes. And now you're moving on to Dave Brubeck, yes? No, well, Dave Brubeck was probably a little bit earlier. Um, you know, I was an art romantic, as I said. So uh, Dr. Shivago was a movie that I saw several times because that was, I saw my, I identified with that. And I had from an early age onwards, and this might be interesting, from an early age onwards, as as I told you, I wanted to go away from Holland to Africa or otherwise to Asia, but certainly to, to Africa. And there was always, I had this view of to be with my woman and that together we would do it. And so the idea of the Dr. Shivago with Lara, I was in love, an unrequited love. I only met her twice with a Norwegian girl and we have now uh made contact again she is dementing and old but it is wonderful uh she's in she's in in the arctic circle so that's i'm, I'm cracking up here uh Rene. i'm completely cracking up with this image of some poor demented old lady sitting on the ice of the arctic circle just knitting away and talking to herself and dribbling out of her mouth <laughs> no she's not no no she is actually she she says that she's demented she's delightful and elizabeth and i phone her every now and again on facetime because this was also something I've, I've written some poetry about her, and I had only met her twice in my life. And I was 18 then, and so she went then to America and then lost complete contact. But Elizabeth said, you must get in contact with her. And then nowadays via Google and whatever. So a few years ago, we did, and she... Uh, 
yeah, we, we every now and again, every two months or something, we have a Zoom. And that is just wonderful. Just delightful. So let us listen to Lara's theme from the film Dr. Shivago, written by the composer Maurice Jarre. You've been listening to Lara's theme from the film Dr. Shivago, written by the composer Maurice Jarre. René, what have you got for our fifth piece of music? Do you know the composer Arvo Pert? I do, and I absolutely adore his music. I do too. So Mirror in Mirror, or Spiegel im Spiegel, that is so wonderful. I think it's one of the things that I would like to have played at my funeral. But as Elizabeth said, that funeral is going to take about a whole day or two days because of all the music pieces. <laughs> well, listen, um, tell me what it is about Avopart and what it connects you with and why that is such an important piece for you. Well, in the first place, I think it's like a prayer. It is actually, it's a meditation. And it takes away all the externalities of life. And it does make you in a med meditative mood. It can't do anything else. Would you say that this is, if there was one piece of music that you chose for sort of soothing you or, as it were, helping you to de-stress or de-traumatize yourself, would this be the one that you would choose for that? I'm, of course, never stressed. I'm never traumatized. Well, obviously <laughs> not. <laughs> it would certainly help with that, and um, I like it. But I don't know if that would go on your show, though. Oh, I'd love it to go on the show. You know, it is a little bit the same as when a musician had the partiture, had the notes of Arvo Pertz, Spiegel in Spiegel, to play. And he said, but there's no music. And that reminds me of, <laughs> we had a little Dirche when I was a student. And of course, we... Uh, I studied in Leiden in Holland, and you would go to Paris for the weekend after the medical studies in your car with a few students, and you come back again on Sunday night before the medical lectures on Monday. And there was also then this De Chevaux needed something and went into a garage, probably a Ford garage or something, and the man opened the bonnet or I did. And he said, but there's no engine. And that is the same as, as Arvo Pert. <laughs> now, why I like Arvo Pert, and it might be irritating for people to listen to Arvo Pert, because actually you listen to what is not said. You actually listen to the interval. You listen to the purity of the manifestation without any, as you call that in Dutch, frizzle, without frangia around it. It's it's really pure. So it is like the, like the letter I, really this, this uprightness. This is the I. And that music, that sacramental music, if you like, has that quality. If you have a concert and you play Bach or you play whatever, and you have 
a group of 30 or 40 violinists, it doesn't really make a hell of a lot of difference if you do it wrong. In Arvul Part, if you say, if you do one sound wrong, it destroys it. And that's the same as a trumpet, actually. Solo trumpet is also, it's undeniable. If that sound is there, it is there. It will never go. It's not uh, considerate, not said, or, you know, it, it's, you, can't, you can't delete it. So we're now going to listen to Mirror in Mirror. Yeah. Yeah. By Arvo Pert. Yeah. So we've just been listening to Arvo Pert's Mirror on Mirror. And I wonder if you maybe have another piece of music for us in terms of just before we started recording, you were talking about Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto. Yeah, I think it is the adagio that is the, both the third and the second actually have that very beautiful, restful part. But I remember you telling me a little bit about the history of Rachmaninoff's piece and about yeah. uh, when he wrote it. I wonder, because that seemed to relate very much to your work and your passion for mental health and general health and spiritual health. Yeah. So what I understand, and then I may get the, the things a bit wrong, but Rachmaninoff was suicidal, was suffering from depression, and I understand that his first piano concerto was a flop and it didn't actually attract audiences. And he was also had an alcohol problem and that he was then admitted to the psychiatric unit or hospital asylum in Moscow. And he was there for a considerable time. And there was a doctor who worked with him who really helped him through that. And he... Uh, he was no longer addicted to alcohol, and he really found again this this purpose in his life. And then he wrote the second and third piano concertos in the, the following two years, I think. And you can actually hear that. You can hear that overcoming of darkness uh, and the, the gratitude, actually. And that's, we haven't touched much on gratitude, but that is, for me, probably the most important issue in my life. And René, you said that you even use this piece, this adagio, uh, in your work, I believe. Yes, I use a lot of, lot of things. So whatever is needed to, to get a change from a situation that appears to be stuck, and that can be for people to go walk, to eat better and organic food. It can be that they take some time in the day, even if it is for a minute, that they can try not to rush. And if they can be still for an, a minute, many people can't do that. And then you, you let them do, okay, just let it be 30 seconds. That's already fine. And then increase that. So those sort of things, trying to live in the regularity because our physical instrument has got all these rhythms, the heart rhythm, the lung rhythm, the day-night rhythm, the liver from 3 p.m. 
to 3 a.m., the kidney from 3 a.m. to 3 p.m., all these sort of things, the adrenal, adrenaline rhythms, etc. So to try to live also a more rhythmical lifestyle, because we that's one of the big problems, that we're completely dysrhythmic, which makes us also our immune system more prone to all sorts of illnesses and whatever. So to do that and then to try to also get an interest, let's say, in look look at have on your coffee table a book about art of Renaissance art or something, and look at these pictures every now and again. Um, just fill your stuff with with a bit other things. Go outside um, and try to fill yourself also with influences that have not to do with the day-to-day life. And music is one of them. And then I don't mean, you know, hard rock or really the, the, the music. For instance, they found that cows give more milk with Mozart. And so the influences that our whole world has on that, the music is one of them. Um, the influences of the constellations and the planets on our being. So try to look one day, just try to look at night at the sky and feel that wonder. Yeah, so I I try to work with all of that. And then I use also conventional medication if I need to, but usually try to do that for a time, as long as it can bring about the change that people are more amenable to psychotherapy or something. Uh, And I use quite a bit of anthroposophical and homeopathic medicine because that's what I trained in. And then I write a script, indeed. I write a a, a proper hospital prescription for playing the guitar if they talked about that that was the time they felt happiest. And the guitar is still on the attic. A few strings are broken. So I asked them to go and get it and get it repaired and just play half an hour a day. See what it feels. That's the freedom that we we can be free beings. So I want to know, how do you use Rachmaninoff's Adagio in his second piano concerto? How do you use that? Do you just play it or do you just tell them to go away and listen to it? I can do both. If uh, if there's a computer in the room where I see them, I can just Google it up, or I I write it down and say, well, you, I would feel this could be helpful for you. Have a listen to it and put it on YouTube. Um, anything. So you've just been listening to the adagio from Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto. So, Rene, we're on our last track here of your Music with Meaning, and I wondered what piece of music you'd like to round off this wonderful musical journey with. Well, there could be a number, really, but I think one of my favourite ones is Mozart's Clarinet Concerto. We talked a bit about Africa, and Africa has always been, from early childhood onwards, in my ideal, really, to almost live in a hut and simply do good and lead a very simple life. And that was really like that. I lived in a very simple little house uh, among the huts. And I learned the the Shona language. 
And you had in the background of my thatched hut where I was sitting, you heard indeed the drums, you heard all the animals. And there was something quite amazing in that really rural Africa. And the movie Out of Africa is, of course, a completely different one and is from the colonial time. But there is something about Africa that is captured in that movie. And that's, of course, used in the clarinet concerto of Mozart. And that's, that's why that is really reminiscing of that. Africa is something really that's, you get it under your fingernails and you can't get it out. Or it is Africaitis, or somebody in South Africa once said, it grabs you by the balls. <laughs> it does really, um, because Africa has this absolute directness. And if the river is in flood, the child dies. It's as simple as that, because they can't get over the river to the to the hospital. And so the you don't need to spend a minute with patients talking about illness and death and suffering, because they accept that entirely within within living, within being of life. So there is something so healthy about that, that you are happy to work 24 hours per day. And I can also tell you a bit of a story. There was a woman, probably about 70, who came and she had a problem with her foot. And the foot of these African people has got a very thick callus because they walk all the time. And so I was holding this foot in my hands and I got an incredible feeling of, of awe and admiration and humbleness because I realized that this woman with these feet had been walking probably about 10 kilometers every day. She may never have been further away from her village than 50 kilometers at, at that but when I worked that out at night, then it was, I realized that she had, and I can't remember exactly, but I think she would have walked about eight or nine times around the world, simply in her daily walking. And I held this foot in my hand. And so where the biblical text, the place on which you stand is holy ground, you may recall that, that's in Exodus. And you, I always felt that as the sacredness of the place where you stand, the earth. But it is also you as human being, as bridge between heaven and earth standing on it, makes it sacred as well. So it is really that combination from both downwards and upwards. And I felt that when I was holding this. Okay, but that's so the out of Africa was uh, captured that sense for an arch romantic as I am, similar to Lara's theme in Dr. Shivago. Um, and of course, that's a bygone era. All of this is a bygone era. And I think I'm almost myself a bygone era. I do some mentoring with young registrars. And I was talking about yesterday with him about about medicine, how it was when I started 50 years ago, and the enormous change. And he said, indeed, this is history that you're talking about. 
it is very different. So I think that's the same with my thing. But it made sure that Africa was not a youth dream, but was really a destiny thing, was really I needed to go there. Let us conclude this actually very romantic musical journey by listening to Mozart's clarinet concerto in A minor, A major, which formed part of the soundtrack for Out of Africa. René de Manchy, thank you for sharing your amazing life and your beautiful music, the music that has meaning for you. Thank you so much. It has been a privilege to have this conversation with you. Thank you, Jerry. Entirely mutual. Thanks for tuning in to Real People with Jerry Pives. Do you have a guest suggestion for Jerry? If you know someone who has an interesting life story, maybe that someone is you, then please get in touch. Jerry would love to get your feedback, so please send us a text on 2057 or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio to let us know your thoughts about his show. That's your message to 2057 or inbox at realitycheck.radio. Normal texting charges apply. You've been listening to Real People in the Psychotherapist Chair with Jerry Pives. Tuesdays from 1pm on RCR, Reality Check Radio.